Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 130, The Empire That Would Not Die, with John Halden. Thanks so much to all of you who bought last week's fundraising episode. Today we're going to pause the narrative and look back to the past, specifically to the period 640 AD to 740, because that's the subject of a new book, by John Halden. I've mentioned the authors who I rely on most in putting the podcast together, uh, Warren Treadgold, Mark Witto, Anthony Caldellis, but more prolific than any is John Halden. He was our guide throughout the period of transformation from Heraclius to Leo III, as well as to the whole period of iconoclasm. He was the man behind the modern attempts to create Greek fire as well as the source of much of my information on the army, specific battles, life in the borderlands, and many social issues. Even some of the maps I've posted on the website and social media come from John Halden. John is a professor of European history, as well as of Byzantine history and Hellenic studies. He currently works at Princeton University. He is the director of two projects which concern us, the PIIRS Climate Change and History Research Initiative, which is working towards understanding the impact of climate on societies across Eurasia, and the AFCAT Archaeological Project, which is carrying out surveys in north-central Turkey. The book he's just written is called The Empire That Would Not Die, The Paradox of Eastern Roman Survival, 640-740. to This is, in a way, a follow-up to a book he wrote 20 years ago about the 7th century and the transformation which the empire went through. In this new book, he explores some ideas that you're very familiar with. The geography of Anatolia, the service aristocracy that developed, keeping the elites dependent on the court, the creation of the theme armies. But he also goes deeper, looking at the psychological, the spiritual and the environmental. Part of the reason for the interview was to touch on those environmental sources that are now available to us. As you'll hear, in one amazing study, the landscape can tell us what written history can't. A Cappadocian site records the destruction of the local Roman community, forests growing up on the same spot, 
and then being cleared again in our time by the magnates. I also asked Professor Halden about what recent work tells us about the grain supply of Constantinople during the 7th century, as well as the way in which church and state fused. The interview is very detailed, but I think you'll get a lot out of it. I've edited the recording for time and to get rid of some annoying clicks on the line. Uh, You may also hear a little Princeton traffic in the background, but otherwise, please enjoy the interview. Professor Halden, welcome to the History of Byzantium podcast. Thank you very much, Robin. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the show today. The uh, numerous books and articles you've written have been a major source for our understanding of the Byzantine world. And in the book we want to talk about today, The Empire That Would Not Die, you examine the story of the 7th century and beyond in great depth, taking evidence from every available source to provide us with a holistic analysis. Um, Can you tell us, you know, what brought you back to this topic that you've written about in great detail before and uh, what you kind of wanted to bring out that sources have given you in the last 20 years that you perhaps didn't have access to before to uncover some of the mysteries about Byzantine survival? Of course. Um, so I think the first thing to say is that um, I, I was increasingly dissatisfied with the way in which my earlier book on the 7th century um, tied the various um, elements of the argument together. Not that I thought my arguments in that book were wrong, but I think um, some of them can be substantially amended. Much more importantly, though, um, I felt very strongly that um, historians in looking at the 7th and 8th centuries were describing often in minute detail, what went on and um, deriving an interpretation of what went on from the sources that they were reading. But they were not really examining the mechanics of why it went on. So that we had a very detailed description, although, of course, where two historians gather together, there are at least three opinions. Uh, We had a very detailed description of uh, of what was going on with some variations uh, uh, between different uh, discussants uh, but no real attempt not even a question of no real agreement but no real attempt uh, both to pull all the different strands together you use the word holistic which I, I used in the book to, to pull all those strands together into a single picture where all the elements uh, integrate with one another Firstly, and then secondly, to look at the mechanics of, of change and transformation, and that's what really, uh, what really um, uh, inspired me to revisit the whole, the whole period. Uh, so that was one aspect, getting at the mechanics of social change and transformation. And then the other aspect was we have a lot more information now um, on some elements of what was going on, which wasn't available in the 1980s or even the 1990s. It's become available in the last 15 years. Firstly, a lot more archaeology, which is really crucial to understanding some aspects of the picture. Uh, And secondly, and perhaps just as importantly, possibly more importantly, we now have much more um, uh, environmental data which we can use in uh, trying to contextualize our historical and archaeological information. 
so that when we try to bring those three, let's call them three fields of data together, uh, proxy data for the environment, um, uh, textual and uh, written data from a range of sources, uh, and archaeological data, we can create a much more balanced picture. And then the trick, of course, is to integrate those three different sorts of uh, evidence because they're all very different from one another. And so uh, the watchword these days is consilience. In other words, bringing very different types of data uh, into the same uh, set of arguments and integrating them in such a way that there are no um, contradictions between the different data sets on the one hand and no paradoxes within the argument uh, on the other. I see. So to bring that together in terms of uh, discussing Byzantine survival, you identified a number of key questions that you mm -hmm. wanted to look at. Do you want to just take us through those, um, some of which will definitely have a familiar ring to uh, the podcast listeners who've, uh, who've been going through Byzantine change for the last couple of years, but mm -hmm. talk, talk about what you'd identified where, where you wanted to explore. Well, there are probably more factors one could bring in, but the five key factors that I thought I'd focus my, my work around, uh, firstly, the question of the, the strategic geography of the empire. How is it situated vis-à-vis -vis the polities, state formations, and so forth around it in terms of its geographical position um, and related factors? Uh, secondly, there's a question of the structure of society, and um, in particular, I was interested in the relationship between, um, let's, for the sake of argument, for the moment, call it the state, which is a problematic term, uh, to put it mildly, but still, we know roughly what we think we mean when we use that term, between the state on the one hand, the social elite or elites on the other, and the um, provincial populations, um, uh, as it were, as a third element. And then a third factor entailed attitudes and beliefs, uh, ideologies and belief systems, um, how people could think their world in terms of the way in which, or if you like, the logic of their, of their thinking processes. What would people have done, or how do we see them doing what we think they thought they were doing through the sources that survive? Then there was the question of, broadly speaking, environment, were there any environmental factors that affected how the empire uh, as a state on the one hand and how people within that state uh, on the other um, on the other hand uh, reacted to certain sorts of change or, or, or shifts in their conditions of existence uh, and that could include climate change it could include short-term catastrophic events such as floods or um, earthquakes or volcanoes or whatever and then finally there's a question of the position of the empire in relation to the outside world politically. So the position of the empire as a Christian state with regard to uh, non-Christian states, for example, um, in the Balkans and on the Russian steppe on the one hand, or in the east, particularly in response to um, the Islamic threat. So they were the, the five uh, sort of foci around which I wanted to marshal the, um, the, 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 the evidence that we had. Uh, and the main challenge methodologically was both to make sure that um, beliefs and how people thought about the world was incorporated into the causal apparatus, if you like, um, uh, and had a material impact. 
because often historians, even though they pay lip service to thinking about what people would have thought and believed, don't work that um, awareness into the uh, ways in which people then respond and react to changes. So I wanted to make sure that um, beliefs and ideas were permitted to have the material impact in terms of social praxis in the sociological sense of the term um, that they did have. Absolutely. So a number of areas of the book were, were familiar to me uh, in part from your previous work and so will be more <coughs> familiar to listeners. Um, you know, we have discussed extensively the, the geography of Anatolia and how that aided Roman survival and we've talked a lot about uh, elite behavior and changes and how the court kept the elites coming back to it um, but there was a particular aspect uh, of what you described that I don't think I've ever um, explained well to the listeners and parts of it were new to me so I wonder if you could talk about um, the church and state and how they became more fused during this time and I know some of the processes began before this period but can you talk about how these two institutions presented themselves and then came to be viewed by the end of this period? So, um, the first thing, of course, is to, we, I suppose in some ways, we, we are pulled back to the old notion of uh, Caesaropapism, uh, which was supposed to um, characterize the Eastern Roman Empire um, uh, and is represented firstly through some of the legislation of the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, and then supposedly increasingly um, sharpened as, uh, as the centuries roll, roll by. Um, uh, and although it's been discredited, in, in, in certain respects it's not entirely wrong. And, and the crucial point to bear in mind is that um, when one considers the different trajectories of the papacy in Rome on the one hand and the Patriarchate in Constantinople on the other, we often forget the simple fact that... Um, uh, in Rome, there is no emperor. Um, uh, there is no um, uh, alternative secular authority at all, in fact, apart from a sort of local military um, governor. Um, whereas in Constantinople, uh, you have the imperial court, the major institution of um, uh, secular authority in the Roman Empire altogether. Uh, and so by definition, in a sense, the patriarchate the highest authority in the Eastern Church is going to be at the very at the very best sharing authority with the emperor because from the beginning of the um, process of Christianization of the empire begins with Constantine the first of course and is gradually completed in the course of the from the later fourth into the mid fifth century from the very beginning emperors had um, uh, a very powerful position within the church uh, as well as next door to it if you like in respect of the summoning of um, uh, ecumenical synods and councils and in terms of um, both protecting orthodoxy however it was defined at the time of course we know it it shifts and changes uh, on the one hand and in respect of um, uh, having uh, a say uh, certainly having an influence over the making of dogma in other words determining 
correct belief and correct praxis within the Christian community. Uh, and this is fine for the West as well until after the reign of Justinian. But as East and West are increasingly separated by different political circumstances as well as by disagreements over uh, matters of uh, belief, um, so the influence of the emperors in Constantinople over the church in the East uh, tends to strengthen, while the papacy in the West, nominally subject though it is to imperial authority, nevertheless de facto becomes far more independent and effectively autonomous to the extent that um, it's able to actually adopt an alternative, um, if not antithetical perspective on some issues to the Eastern Church. Um, so the first stage is to bear in mind this, uh, if you like, uh, physical, conceptual, spatial difference between the two uh, poles, Constantinople and Rome. And then there's a second set of processes which set in in the course of the later 6th and into the 7th century, which entail what's been called um, the liturgification of um, imperial ceremonial and the drawing into um, uh, um, an ecclesiastical uh, realm of interest, if you like, of um, uh, the secular authority. Um, and that's then um, strengthened by the adoption by the emperors themselves of a much more visibly Christian personality, if you like, they themselves begin much more strongly even than Justinian had done to lean very heavily on the Christian identity of their empire and their own role as um, chosen by God. Um, and the result is, uh, cumulatively, across the course of the 7th century, um, uh, that... Uh, state and church don't become the same but they overlap in so many respects that um, you can begin to see this process of what I call sacralization of the state happening the state is drawn increasingly into a theological ecclesiastical realm of discourse and that's then particularly sharpened by the nature of the shifts that take place in the relationship between secular law and canon law or, and when you put all these things together, what you have effectively is a state church. Uh, a German scholar called Friedhelm Winkelmann, years ago in the 1980s, wrote a short book, unfortunately it was only available in German, but a short book on the history of the, of the, of the, um, the church uh, from the 5th to the 7th century. And, and already then he pointed out that when you bring all these different factors together, you have the establishment of what's effect, in effect an imperial church in the East, which is absolutely not what you have um, in the late Roman uh, or early medieval West. Um, so I, I coined this term, at least I think I coined it, I'm not sure, maybe somebody else used it already in different contexts, uh, the sacralization of the state, to describe the sort of total result of those different threads. And there are others w which one could build into that, which come out clearly, for example, in the debates around monothelitism, uh, from the 640s into the six um, into the early 680s. And I, for listeners' um, benefit, you drew this together very well by pointing out that what follows this period is iconoclasm, and that uh, you know an imperially led change in doctrine and church behaviour just wouldn't have been possible somewhere else where this fusion hadn't taken place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And it's, it was that was very fascinating to see drawn together like that. Um, another area I found particularly interesting was the um, environmental um, research, which I'm very pleased to see um, the archaeology improving and this kind of climate research that can tell us things that you know uh, scholars going over the same texts over and over again can't draw out interesting conclusions like this. So could you tell the listeners about the different types of environmental sources which are now available to us? Sure. So, well, the first thing to say is that we have um, the the, the environmental and um, uh, climate science has itself or have themselves made huge strides forward in terms of the exactitude of their proxy data and how they can be interpreted in the last 10 or 15 years. So even in the year 2000, it would have been hard to write the, 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 the chapter of the book that, I, that I've actually written. Um, so in the last 15 years, we've seen big strides forward. And um, uh, those strides have consisted in a much more exacting, on the one hand, and precise or exact, uh, on the other hand, way of analyzing and interrogating the data. What are the types of data? Well, they're varied and they apply to different levels of um, analysis. So in terms of global atmospheric changes, which can tell us about climate, we have, of course, um, uh, ice cores from glaciers and from the polar uh, ice caps, um, both uh, Antarctica and Arctica and um, the the Arctic, um, uh, which can be analyzed for gaseous um, uh, evidence about atmospheric constituents, which can tell us about the temperature of the atmosphere at a given point in time, depending on the um, uh, the chronology of the that the cores cover. And we now have, uh, again, for example, four years ago, our ice cores took us back um, uh, 30, 40, 50, maybe 100,000 years. Um, uh, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more recently, 200,000 years. I was talking to a colleague yesterday who tells us we now have ice cores which can give us some idea of uh, the atmosphere uh, two million years ago. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but of course, the further back in time you go, the more compressed these uh, ice core layers are, and the harder they are to interpret and read. But when you go back only four or five hundred years, you can often have a piece of uh, 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 an ice core layer which is uh, which is br- broken up into annual sort of sediments each of which is several centimeters thick um, and you can read a huge amount out of those um, uh, those layers from the core at any rate um, using a range of isotopic analytical systems for lead isotopes carbon isotopes oxygen isotopes and so forth um, beryllium uh, 10 for example is important in terms of telling us about solar flaring and um, the impact that the sun has on the earth's atmosphere we can actually say a good deal now about fluctuations in the atmosphere uh, um, in the temperature of the atmosphere firstly and we can also say a good deal about what was in the atmosphere and so for example we know and probably many of your listeners already know this we know from the um, uh, measurement of the lead isotopes from uh, glaciers and from the, um, uh, from the Arctic ice cap uh, um, uh, cores that um, you can see a real spike 
in the presence of lead in the atmosphere from round about 130 BCE into the second and early third century of the Common Era. Um, and this correlates directly with the huge amount of industrial production that went on in the, at the height of the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, um, polar ice cores can't be more specific than that. They can only tell you what's in the atmosphere or in the northern hemisphere in particular across a, a given period. But nevertheless, that gives you general indication of what's happening to your hemisphere at any given point. Um, so that's one type of evidence. Then we have um, the evidence of diatoms, which are minute, um, uh, smaller than millimeter um, life forms um, from lake beds and from sediments. Uh, and these again tell us about uh, uh, climatic conditions, uh, providing we can date them appropriately. And then, of course, in terms of looking at what people were doing on the land and how they were using the landscape, uh, our most important source of evidence uh, is palynology, in other words, the analysis of pollens. Um, this is very complicated, and you have to take into account a whole range of factors such as um, average and typical winds and directions of winds uh, across the seasons, um, uh, and so we have to model those for the past. You also have to take into account the relative specific weights of the different types of pollen. And there are other sources of uh, environmental information, for example, what are called speleothems, that's to say stalactites and stalagmites um, within caves. Uh, these can be deployed uh, to read out similar sorts of atmospheric information as the polar ice cores, um, but they can also contain pollens as well. And if they can be appropriately um, layered and dated, then they can also give us information about um, very specific shifts and changes uh, in, in land use, for example. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge amount of potential information, but obviously it's very complex. Um, uh, obviously you've written a whole chapter of the book detailing what this tells us and what it might tell us about Anatolia, but could you give the listeners a flavour of what you've learnt and what it might suggest? I know there was a very specific study done on a lake not that far from you know, the border um, with the caliphate, which yielded quite interesting results. Yes, uh, this is uh, a place called Nargolu, or Lake Nar, in, um, in, in Cappadocia, basically, in south-central Turkey. Um, not all that far from Kayseri, ancient uh, Caesarea in Cappadocia. Um, and the, the thing about this lake was that this is, it's almost unique, um, but this is a lake in which we have exact annually laminated and therefore datable sediments which go back to around about 280 uh, AD uh, up to the 19th century. And so we can actually look at changes on an annual basis in land use. And um, what was remarkable about the, the um, evidence from this uh, set of sediments, uh, these, these annually laminated parts of the core are called valves, Incidentally, what was unique and interesting about these valves is that they showed a dramatic collapse of anthropogenic activity, that's to say um, human use of the landscape in terms of crops, um, from the um, six, uh, late 660s, early 670s for about 15 or so years. Uh, actually, I've forgotten the exact uh, time span, but it was 15 or 16 years. 
what you got in the in the in the pollen diagrams was um, cer- suddenly a total absence of um, evidence for olive culture, um, uh, viticulture, um, uh, cereal culture, and so forth. None of this means that these things ceased absolutely, but the pollen signature from them, which had been very strong beforehand, is reduced to virtually zero. So at the very least, that suggests a dramatic collapse of local agrarian activity, firstly, and almost certainly a dramatic collapse demographically. In other words, a huge reduction in, in, in population. This sort of process sets in in the, late, in the mid-660s, if I remember correctly, um, and you have then a, a very well-established pattern whereby, first of all, you see the disappearance of all the pollens associated with human activity. You then see the appearance of pollens associated with weeds, but with weeds that are associated with recently abandoned agricultural land. And this is a well-known phenomenon. Um, uh, Those weeds tend to become increasingly uh, dominant, but they're eventually replaced by other forms of um, of, uh, uh, plant, notably scrubland and then eventually woodland, pine and um, some deciduous uh, trees as well. So you get a a re-wooding or a re afforestation if you like, of what had been a largely agrarian landscape. And then um, equally suddenly in the 950s and 960s, so 300 and odd years later, uh, the reappearance of anthropogenic pollens, that's to say crops, uh, pollens associated with um, grains and in particular associated with uh, livestock. And we can associate these shifts in the environment, interestingly, not with changes in the climate because none of these shifts uh, are um, coincidental with any major climatic changes. However, they are directly associated with very important and otherwise well-documented shifts in the political uh, history of the Eastern Roman Empire. So, for example, we have from um, Arab Islamic and Syriac sources, as well as some Greek texts, very clear evidence that the area affected by this first shift in the 660s was an area more or less constantly occupied by, harried, raided and ravaged by Arab uh, attackers uh, in exactly that period. We have sources which give us some pretty exact and plausible dates. By the same token, um, the archaeology suggests that this area continued to be occupied but on a very, very sparse and marginal scale until the middle of the 10th century, and then it's recolonized, and we have a couple of texts which make this very clear uh, from the Greek side. Uh, the area is recolonized by expansionist uh, elite landlords um, who are setting up big cattle ranches or, or similar establishments and expanding their uh, lands as the threat from uh, Arab raiders recedes because the empire is then going on the offensive. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was. It felt very um, relevant and, and exciting to me because of where the podcast is now in its narrative is in the 950s with, um, you know, the, ca- the recapture of Melatine and the, the moving of um, the so-called landed magnates onto land that had been long abandoned and cultivating it. And so the, the evidence is suggestive that we can actually start to, to see areas, you know, that we know nothing about 
through the environmental data sort of come to life. And um, I believe you um, have done work with sort of north-central Turkey where, again, it's suggestive of where um, cereal crops may have been demanded uh, from by the government in the time of crisis. That, again, not to say we've drawn definite conclusions, but, again, the environmental data starts to tell us perhaps how survival was possible yeah i mean the 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 nice thing about the environmental data is it won't give you a direct answer uh, and it certainly won't give you a direct cause unless you have a sort of major uh, catastrophic event like a tsunami or an earthquake and there you can say well uh, a particular sort of societal response is directly caused by this um this um natural event Uh, but the good thing about the environmental data is it uh, asks it encourages to ask different questions and possibly to rethink the evidence that you already know about, um, put it in a new light and re-examine it from different angles. Um, And so that's what I was doing, and that's what we've done in our project in northern Turkey, where we we had a field survey finished last year. Um, But some of that data also helped us think about uh, different topics, such as um, how did the East Roman state... Uh, supply itself with, for example, or supply its uh, capital, Constantinople, with uh, grain when um, it had lost its major supplier in Egypt, first to the Persians in 618 and then to the Arabs in 641. Um, and although there were other alternative sources, such as Sicily and North Africa, um, they were insecure. Uh, North Africa, obviously, because it was lost by the 690s, uh, and, but Sicily, because it was um, the sea routes to and from, um, uh, were challenged by um, maritime piracy and raids. And so the empire needed something closer to home that was more dependable. The, the, the problem here is that um, if you look at the graphs that we've now got, and what it shows is that across Asia Minor, um, from the 550s, 560s, 570s on, there's a dramatic collapse at production at production levels uh, and that would coincide with the um, offset impact of both the Justinianic plague which is endemic between the 540s and the and the 750s on the one hand as well as a set of other factors but importantly within that picture so you, it's hard to describe um, verbally but if you imagine a relatively high peak um, uh, on a graph in the 550s, um, uh, let's say at, at the level of um, 50, and a drop um, from that peak down to a level of, say, 10 across the board um, for the next 150-odd years, maybe 200-odd years. Um, and yet there is a, a slight uh, incline from the 650s and 660s on in northern Anatolia, uh, which suggests basically that although the population has collapsed, the, the relative proportion of cereal crops produced to that population size was, was growing uh, in comparison with the relative proportion of cereal crops produced to the population when it was much higher in the mid-6th century and, and before, if I'm making any sense. So in other words, um, wh- how do we explain the fact that uh, there is uh, a collapse in in, um, in population, but the population is producing more grain than it appears to need, uh, which is one possible interpretation of this. 
And then the answer is because the uh, farming population of that part of the empire and possibly other parts is being encouraged by one means or another to produce more uh, grain and um, and so forth than uh, hitherto was 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 the norm, um, and that seems to me to be indicative of um, uh, an increased requirement for those products. And then you have to ask, well, why does that happen? Um, is there a climatic reason for it? The short answer is there can be in some parts of Asia Minor. A more complex answer would be it's a combination of climatic factors on the one hand and shift in market demand, perhaps, which would also possibly account for it on the other. Um, but combined with the fact that there's also a shift in technical fiscal terminology in the second half of the 7th century, which would suggest that the government itself is requiring uh, more things to help it support its military and its Constantinopolitan population. Um, I concluded that uh, a key element in this was actually uh, fiscal pressure from the government on um, farmers, peasants, landlords to produce more grain and livestock. Yeah. Well, there is a lot more I could ask you, but I think at this point we shall have to direct people to the book um, to go and check it out for themselves, The Empire That Would Not Die, The Paradox of Eastern Roman Survival. Um, Professor Heldon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, and I think I speak for all the listeners when I say uh, please continue to be so immensely productive <laughs> and helpful to the field. Thank you very much indeed. Next time, it's back to the narrative as Constantine VII looks to continue his father's legacy by pacifying the island of Crete. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.